know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we were privileged to have the opportunity to talk to political science alumni Ahmed Khan. Mr. Khan is the president of Paradigm Global Group Incorporated, a private investment firm, and serves as senior advisor to the Clinton Kiustra Sustainable Growth Initiative. He is the founder of Elpida Home, an innovative nonprofit in Thessaloniki, Greece, which has helped thousands of Syrian, Iraqi, and Afghan refugees. As the founder and president of the Zaka Khan Foundation, he supports reconstruction projects in Iraq and throughout the Middle East. We talked to Mr. Khan about his time on campus and his accomplished career trajectory. We also asked him about recent articles he's written about U.S. relations in the Middle East, as well as with China, in the context of long-standing human rights issues. We thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Mr. Khan and learned so much. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Ahmed. It is a great pleasure and honor to have you. Thanks, Adam and Sam. This is great. It's uh, it's fun to be here, uh, sort of virtually in Madison. <laughs> yeah, we are really excited to hear all about your career experience. But before we get to that, can you give the listeners a little bit about your background in your own words and a little bit about how you got to where today, your, the development of your professional narrative? Hmm. That's interesting. I suppose today I'm a full-time human rights advocate, humanitarian slash philanthropist, although I don't really like the philanthropist thing. But ancient Greek, it means lover of humanity. I suppose I love humanity. I've done a bunch of stuff, and I think I jumped between things that interest me, sort of experiences. To get to this point, I've worked for the U.S. government. I've worked for international NGOs. I've worked for local nonprofits. I've worked in private business all getting me to the point where I am right now. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about how your majors that you pursued here at UW, how they connected to your roles in your post-grad life? Or talk a little bit about your like maybe interests that led to you being a political science and history major. Sure. In high school, I had um, a number of teachers that would hand out these printouts, and I don't know if they do that anymore, but uh, from journals. And there were writings from William Appleman Williams, La Follette, and some others who were, you know, giants of Wisconsin. And I was like, this is amazing. They were both, they were history classes, both 11th grade and 12th grade. And I said, I, I've got to go to this place. And I was from suburban New York and it, it just seemed exotic and it seemed amazing. Like just the Wisconsin idea, you know, sort of one thing after another was pointing me toward Wisconsin. I said, all right, I'm going to go out there. And then, you know, I suppose I w- had an interest in politics and history since I was a kid. And At Wisconsin, I just had great professors who helped me down that road. Booth Fowler, Donald Downs, Tom McCormick, who passed away last year. You know, giants. And uh, I had read them when I was in high school. So I was like, wow, I'm sitting in their class. And I was just totally blown away by that. So I thought that was amazing. So basically, I, I... In Wisconsin, I was sort of discovering what I was probably passionate about, and I was surrounded by people who were passionate about sort of things like human rights and democracy and humanitarianism. So I think Wisconsin sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities, and these professors specifically. My first job out of Wisconsin, basically, I I graduated in December of 91, 
I spent that fall trying to figure out what I was going to do. I didn't really have a job lined up. So I'd actually walk around with, um, I'd follow Booth Fowler after class and just run ideas by him. And I don't know if he had any interest in what I was saying, but it was very good for me. And sort of at the end of that, I, I left school and went to volunteer for Bill Clinton, who at the time was a seventh place candidate heading toward the New Hampshire primary. So I, I started in New York, then I went to New Hampshire, California, New Jersey, the convention in the summer. So I was on the campaign full time as an employee at some point. That led to the presidential transition and then to the White House, which was bizarre because that was 12 months after literally I was, I don't know what you'd call it, but pretty much sitting on the couch in Madison. So then kind of to continue that story a little bit, I mean, that's a, a, a fascinating start to a professional career. How did then that kind of lead you into your other jobs in the, uh, we'll take the loosely defined area of philanthropy? So basically it was experience after experience. So I was in the White House in the Office of Administration and, you know, I was probably just turned 22 and I don't think there was a big market for uh, 22-year-olds in the foreign policy establishment. <laughs> so I, I wanted to figure out how I can get into international relations. So I, I, a friend knew Carol Bellamy, who then became the head of the United States Peace Corps which was part of the executive branch. And I had actually thought about joining the Peace Corps because I think at the time, Wisconsin was the number one source of Peace Corps volunteers, and it may still well be. So I became a special assistant to the director of the Peace Corps, and that was a political appointment. So I left the White House and worked at the Peace Corps for about a year and a half. And then the Rwanda genocide broke out. And so this is just sort of, I don't, I don't know if I recommend this to people, but I just basically just said, I want to do that and I want to do this. And so I, I had no field experience. So traditionally, NGOs don't really hire people with no field experience. But I, I harassed a bunch of senior members of the U.S. government to get me out into the field uh, in the camps of uh, after the Rwanda genocide. And I was successful. So I walked into my the director's office and, and said, look, I'm giving you my two weeks notice. And I'm moving to live in a tent in Rwanda. She's like, you're out of your mind. And I said, yeah, well, you know, now's the time to do it, I suppose. So I wound up out there for two years, almost two years. That experience working in refugee camps where people have lost everything. And it was a it was a massive tragedy, as you know, you know, sort of a million people died and just an incredible number given the population. And then millions of people were displaced. So that was a sort of experience. And I think well, it was like uh, I was 24 and I thought, you know, this is this is unbelievable. Actually, that probably was the the big experience, I think, like which set my understanding of everything and it was it was or it was you know I sort of decided at that point that I really didn't want to work for international NGOs I wanted to figure out how I could do humanitarianism and human rights activism on my own where I was calling the shots not not to be like a dictator or something but I came to that realization then uh, I I can't imagine that such an experience like that wouldn't then shape kind of the way you interacted and saw the world in your career path but then kind of just looking at that as a whole from the perspective of, I suppose, people like Adam and I who are about to graduate, what would your advice be to students who are looking to get onto the job market after they graduate, who maybe are looking at your career trajectory and want to figure out how to pursue maybe even a fraction of some of the amazing things that you've been able to do? Well, you know, I was really lucky, right? Like, I don't even know how it turned out. Like, I left Madison. I rented a minivan, that, like, from the only company that would allow you to do it one way. And it was like 90 bucks. To, it took all my stuff home to New York. And, you know, I just happened to love Clinton. And he happened to be running for president. <laughs> he happened to be in seventh place. And there were only 10 people on the campaign. 
So, you know, I, I think I think the important thing is probably pursuing your passions and being as organized as you possibly can and having as much energy as you possibly can. And, you know, things will work out. I think the lesson, if I were to be introspective about my career, is that I've probably been at the right place at the right time a lot of times, mainly because I was doing things that I was passionate about. So I don't know that I necessarily followed, you know, a traditional sort of path. Right. And so I don't know that it's for everyone, but, you know, if you sort of see yourself as kind of like a little bit entrepreneurial or a little bit of a risk taker, you know, I would encourage that for anyone that sees that in themselves. I mean, I think the the most important thing is probably have to be true to yourself. So like if you're a good networker and you like it, then you should do it. But if it's not comfortable to you, like, you know, I don't, you know, I think they they tell you you should, but I don't really, you know, I try not to encourage them. Could be a bit antisocial, but I don't want to tell anybody to do that. (laughs) Fair enough. Maybe now we can move into your current role being the president of Paradigm Global Group and a senior advisor in the Sustainable Growth Initiative. Can you tell us and the listeners a little bit about these two bodies and what you do for them? So Paradigm is just an investment company. And I started that because I was sort of like an amateur investor when I was a kid. And it's a it's something that I'm good at, like, you know, someone's good as a painter, so they become a painter. Someone's great with plumbing, so they become a plumber. And I, but I didn't want to be, uh, I wanted, I didn't want to work in finance, right? Like, I didn't want to work in Wall Street because that's just not who I am, you know? And it's great that people do that in hedge funds and private equity, but I mean, I don't really, that's not my worldview. But so I saw my skills in finance as a way to try to allow me to do what I wanted to do. So essentially, it's a private investment firm that makes uh, makes investments in early stage companies and, and technology and some others. And I actually spent time on it in 2006, seven and eight and nine, probably. I mean, it still exists, but it's like on autopilot because most of my time is spent on human rights advocacy and humanitarianism. So Paradigm is the, basically allows me to be able to fund my projects because, you know, sort of, I, I made some good long-term investments and got lucky a bunch of times, which is part of it and took a lot of risks. And that's another thing that, you know, sort of is a recurring theme. So with regard to my daily activities now, I was very involved in the 2020 election. So I was on the Biden-Harris National Finance Committee, which was the, you know, sort of core group of people that uh, raised the obscene amount of money that, that, you know, our system is set up to pay for elections. And then I was involved with a bunch of progressive, well, leftist (laughs) congressional candidates that I truly believe in young ones. I think, uh, you know, I I just think, you know, our system is a little bit messed up and it needs needs a shock, right? So so I was very involved with that during the campaign. Then I was involved with the incoming Biden administration during the um, transition. And now uh, still being sort of like an outside advocate an agitator for the causes that I work on in my, you know, philanthropy, which are refugees and human rights activists that have been exiled by authoritarian dictators. So I try to support a number of activists and causes around the world. And then I'm trying to encourage the Biden administration to, you know, implement policies that I, you know, sort of am for. So I'm pretty much, I'm a little bit out there, but I think, you know, there's this thing called the Overton window, right? And like, what's the sort of acceptable range of discussions? And I always wanted to be pushing. So I'm sort of like a bit extreme, but it's good because you wind up, you know, getting to where you actually wanted to go. To kind of then ask a follow up on that, what does just your day to day work life look like? What is maybe the average day for you in that position, those positions, or is there even an average day? Well, I mean, today, well, 
it kind of changes. For example, you know, it's, it's pretty weird, but I supported a film that was made about the uh, Bosnian genocide in Srebrenica in 1995. And so this film was literally made with by a female director from Sarajevo with literally soup cans and string and cobbled together a budget. And somehow uh, it's nominated uh, for an Oscar for Best International Film. So we got that news yesterday morning. They announced the Oscar nomination. So every day is kind of different, but today has been busy with strategy for bringing the Oscar home, which is a whole different issue. But that's there's been a lot of that today. And then another thing that I've been closely involved with for the last 10 years has been the Syrian war. And so it's the 10-year anniversary of um, the Syrian uprising, the Syrian revolution, and the Syrian war. So I was on a session earlier today with a number of Syrians that I've worked with over the years, because my main philanthropy is building and operating refugee camps for Syrian, Iraqi, and Afghan refugees in Turkey and Greece, uh, as well as some inside the countries themselves. So I've been very, you know, so it changes, but it's usually some something that I'm outraged about and I'm working on it all day long. Thank you for all of that advice to our students. We do really, really appreciate that. But This is 1050 Bascom, and this is a politics podcast at its core. So we were not going to let you get away without asking you some questions about some of the articles you've written relating to international and foreign policy. So if we can jump into that first, I want to ask a couple questions related to an article that you wrote in late January arguing that President Biden should suspend arms sales, including those of F-35, to the UAE. So I just want to start broadly and talk about how the UAE's destabilizing and harmful actions have increased throughout the Trump presidency for those of our listeners who might not be very aware about it. So can you just start by giving us a brief history of kind of what's happened in the short term for U.S. relations with the UAE and how maybe the Biden administration should approach the Middle East more generally. Where I'm coming from is that the UAE and the Saudis are obviously uh, authoritarian dictators. Um, So I come at it from a couple of angles. First one is probably as a human rights advocate. So people I know are in prison in these places, or people I know have been in prison in these places for simply speaking their mind. One who was released recently is uh, Lujan Al-Aflul, who was in prison for simply wanting to drive and ask for her rights. And the Biden administration has successfully gotten her out of prison, but she's still in basically house arrest for the next five years. I wrote the piece because the United States theoretically, you know, well, we spend $1.2 trillion a year on the national security state, $900 billion a dot. That is the Defense Department. The idea that we would be party to authoritarian dictators and be at their beck and call is bizarre to me. So for example, the uh, the Saudis are the number one purchaser of U.S. weapons and the number two purchaser of U.S. weapons last year were the United Arab Emirates, which is a country the size of New Jersey, which, you know, out of the 195 members of the United Nations, why are they the number two purchaser of U.S. weapons? So it sort of tells you the interests that are at play in these kind of relationships. So number one, I'm not happy with their, you know, sort of authoritarian dictatorship. Number two, they've been, they played a destabilizing role in both Syria and Yemen. Yemen is looking at the biggest humanitarian catastrophe ever. There's there's a famine coming and it's something that no one's ever seen. Millions and millions of people are on the verge of starvation. 
So the flip side of that is they've spent enormous amounts of money, the UAE and the Saudis, in the United States co-opting U.S. institutions. So universities, think tanks, Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, they uh, have poured tons and tons of money into making investments into all our institutions for the sole role of making sure that they don't have to deal with people like me who don't want them to get away with what they're getting away with. And it's really powerful. And I think it's just, you know, it's something we've got to fight against because I don't think that our relationship should be based on fighter planes that can kill people. Uh, there has to be something deeper than that. And we, you know, we, we can't go forward like that. It's just unsustainable. And that's why I wrote that piece. And a few hours later, the Biden administration did suspend uh, weapon sales to the UAE. I, didn't, I wasn't taking full credit for it, but I'll take like 1% of the credit. I think that that is fair to take that 1% of credit in that. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> so now that you, you mentioned the Biden administration, what are some of the things that are happening in this new administration that are different from, I guess, the Trump administration's approach? Or maybe, I mean, to ask is like, how quickly can Biden turn things around to more of what he wants his administration to approach the Middle East? Well, in the Middle East, it's, a, it's turning 50 years of American policy around, really, because, you know, it's based on oil and defense, weapons and security. And so making adjustments in the Middle Eastern relationship will take time. But I think they're off to a good start by talking about emphasizing human rights and speaking out during the campaign. He was great uh, speaking out against dictators and we will not kowtow to dictators for whatever interest that is. And it's usually financial, right? So I, you know, I think uh, it's a long road, but, you know, the initial steps have been great. And there's a grid activist community out there keeping an eye on things. And we know most of the people, you know, who are in the White House and the State Department working on these things because they're all old collaborators. So, you know, I think we're on the the right track with regard uh, to the Middle East, but it's, it's constant. It's a constant battle because, you know, I, I, it's simple. It's like a sort of like a battle between good and evil, really. Like, you know, there are the bad guys out there and they really just don't want to do good things <laughs> and you run up against them every day. So it's a, it's a constant sort of advocacy effort because you really, the status quo is just not good, right? Like, and there's a reason for that because it serves specific interests, you know, and that's what's fascinating about Trump because he said he was running against the elite, was the elite. I mean, like, how are you a billionaire, but you're not an elite? And it was, I, I found that fascinating because you know, they sort of, the right has co-opted the term of elite. So I think of elite and I think of like corporate titans, like, you know, I think Jeff Bezos is an elite and Elon Musk is an elite and all these other guys that control zillions of dollars, right? They're elites, but uh, somehow it's been changed to liberal university professors or something who are coming after your guns or your bathrooms or whatever it is. And uh, I think that's something that really needs to be dealt with because I, you know, on his on the campaign, he's like, you know, it's a rigged system, it's corrupt, and I'm gonna I'm the only one that can fix it. It would be great if that were true, you know, because the language is great because it, it is a rigged system and it is corrupt and it needs to be fixed. And uh, so, but you know, he just uh, unfortunately people went along for the ride, and I think a lot of them understand that it wasn't probably a, he probably wasn't in it for the best reasons. But um, you know, I think it's it's something that has to be done. I'm interested in the fact that you're framing this as kind of just decisions between good and evil or right and wrong, because something that I want to ask your thoughts on is that one of the most common counter arguments to ending United States arms sales or amicable relationships with the UAE and Saudi Arabia is that it's a bit more nuanced than just doing what is outwardly right or might 
or might what be just like the outward principles that we project. Like, for example, with Saudi Arabia, perhaps selling arms sales to dictators isn't the right thing to do, but watering down or worsening our relationship with them at a time when we're trying to re-enter the Iranian nuclear deal may make that even harder considering that Saudi Arabia is also against us re-entering that deal and thus will only make it more difficult to achieve this perhaps more important objective. Or, for example, that if it's not the United States selling arms to Saudi Arabia or the UAE, it might be, say, the Russians or the Chinese, who are a lot less concerned with democratic or liberal values and thus we're kind of losing our seat at the table perhaps through losing that trade relationship but at the same time i think the argument still stands that in principle there is a right and wrong thing to do and it is wrong to sell arms to people who are going to use them to spread death and destruction so my question is how would you respond to that counter argument that while principles and values are incredibly important, they need to fold under like the realist interests of foreign policy. Yeah, it's a great question, and that's the you know that's the counter argument which I call propaganda um, that that they come up with. <laughs> I mean, you know, because that's what it is. We're the United States. Like literally, the Saudis and the UAE don't exist without us. Like they don't exist for one day without us. So we don't need their goodwill. We're gonna we tell them this is how it's gonna be. And that's it. And they do it. But for some reason, because our leaders are so co-opted by financial interests, that doesn't happen. And then as well as think tanks. So name a think tank, study their funding, look where it came from, look what the reports they wrote, and then draw a straight line to who funded that report and how they came up with this thing about why we have to make it easy on the Saudis to enter the Iran deal. No, we don't. We, we, the United States of America do whatever we want. We, we, I mean, George Bush proved that, right? Like, it's, it's for the wrong. We do this stuff. Why on earth do we do all this crazy stuff, which is insane, invading countries with as, asking people, but we won't actually fight for peace, right? Like, so this is like, it's a very simple thing. We don't want to be at war with Iran. So we're going to do this peace deal. And you guys are going to come along for the ride because we're telling you to. It's literally that simple. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not very nuanced at all. They just uh, created these uh, walls to uh, maintain the status quo. Because essentially, if you are the Saudis or the Emirati royal family, your only interest is really remaining in power. That's you know, Everything else is kind of irrelevant. And so, you know, your PR people and your lobbyists in Washington and London and New York, all the things that they care about are, you know, basically keeping you in power so you can keep paying them. And that trickles down to universities and think tanks, et cetera. That's how this sort of distorted thing happens and is allowed to happen. So it takes a lot of brave policymakers um, to push through the right thing to happen. I mean, because it's really the right thing for the United States. It's the right thing on every level. You know, we could go, if we had hours and hours, I'd break down how uh, defense contractor profits are spread out. But for the most part, it's uh, senior executives with three houses, a boat, another house, <laughs> and a plane. And the jobs that, they, uh, that they're always talking about, there's no shortage of legislation that you could come up with those kind of jobs with better salaries. You could actually just give the people the money <laughs> instead, you know, sort of like the F-35 program, you know, some of the purchases. And then they talk about how many jobs were created. And then you look at the salary on the job that was created 
would have been better off not buying the F-35, just giving everybody that money. <laughs> they could have done whatever they wanted to <laughs> rather than working at a defense contractor. So, yeah, I mean, the old, there's all sorts of arguments that very smart people come up with uh, defensively bad guys. <laughs> sort of, you know, it's kind of funny. I was, um, what was I reading the other day? I was reading uh, Ann Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, which I think is brilliant. She was talking about the involvement of a sort of intellectual class and professional class in sort of fascist movements and authoritarian movements and basically bad stuff in general. And uh, this is that sort of thing. Absolutely. Thinking back to our conversation, the conversation we've been having on foreign policy, especially during this new era in in the Biden administration, do you have any items on like a foreign policy wish list that you would want to see the Biden administration implement within the next year? Yeah, I can't give that too much away because I'm actually writing them every day saying I want this and I want this and I want this. But I can tell you after when it happens. But I mean, some basic stuff is like, for example, with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, why isn't it that we couldn't use our leverage over them to just say, look, maybe you want to switch to a uh, constitutional monarchy instead of an absolute monarchy, like so you can have a parliament or something. Like, uh, it just, you know, I'm not a big believer in exporting democracy. I think we need to defend democracy where it exists, but I think we need to encourage democracy where it doesn't exist. So we're not, you know, a top-down thing, but encouraging, you know, sort of grassroots democracy. So people have the right to speak their opinions and have their opinions. And, you know, there's this ongoing controversy about uh, are the elites the guardrails of society? But I, I don't think so. I think it's really the citizenry. And I think it's, this, you know, you know, for example, the $1.9 trillion stimulus, it seems 70% of America's for it, right? So that's, that's the citizenry, but there's plenty, but, but no Republicans voted for it, which is kind of odd because plenty of Republican citizens voted for it. So, you know, I think, uh, I think what I hope to achieve is to get more political prisoners out of prison around the world, more uh, support for uh, refugees and displaced people from the wars that we started. Because very often we just don't even, you know, sort of like, ah, there's refugees, they're coming, they're all over the place. But then you're like, so what was that war and how did it start and who was there? It's very easy. There's a straight line between, you know, like who is making money off of wars, who sells weapons into wars. But none of those people, you can never find them when it's time to be held accountable, which is kind of... Uh, kind of weird. So that's another thing that I try to do is hold uh, people accountable. And um, so I'll, uh, I'll send you a list and then uh, we'll see how it comes out in about a year or so. <laughs> we'll be, we'll be watching. We'll keep tabs. Um, <laughs> yeah. You keep tabs on me. I'll keep tabs on them. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Hypothetical syllogism. So to, to shift gears a little bit, uh, you know, we're talking, mentioning holding people accountable. One huge, incredibly powerful party that you've written a perspective analysis on for CNN about holding accountable is China, notably because of their treatment of the Uyghurs. So again, maybe to start, could you just share with our listeners the broad history of this troubling situation of the Uyghurs inside of China, just so we're all kind of starting on the same page here? Well, I mean, there are a lot of people who disagree with me, so I don't know if we're on the same page, but hopefully among those four, we can be on the same page. But essentially, um, I got involved with this through supporting actual Uyghur exiles who were here in the United States a few years ago. So meeting the actual individuals who had to run escape China. The alternative was death. So I got my information from them. You know, the Chinese Communist Party will call it uh, CIA propaganda or something. But, you know, I know these people and I've known them for years, a lot of them. So essentially, the story from their perspective 
is that the you know the Chinese Communist Party is uh, sort of not interested in non-Han cultures, right? So they seek to wipe out the Uyghur culture. So what's been going on, you know, and there's an argument on whether it is a genocide or not. I, I, I believe it is legally. And uh, what's happened is about a million to two million, but we don't really know. We can easily say a million. Uyghurs are in essentially concentration camps, re-education camps, rounded up for any variety of reasons, many for no reason at all. And these are family members of many of the people that I know. And I would say thousands of people. I mean, directly connected to. And so essentially, why are they doing it? I, you know, they're doing it to maintain power, which is, I think, what most governments do by any means. So what I want the United States to sort of say is, you know, because I'm not interested in, I'm not a warmonger, I'm against, you know, sort of invasions and stuff like that. But I, I think it wouldn't be a stretch for the United States government to say, can we agree that genocide is not a good thing? And then we'll take our trade deal and what we want to do on climate and all the other stuff after that. But like, let's get this out of the way. Why can't you release these people? Why can't you allow them? And, and you know, they'll have a bunch of reasons. They'll say they're terrorists, all sorts of other stuff. But uh, I just don't, I, you know, from as from a human, as a human rights activist, you don't, you just, you just find it unimaginable. You know, if you, you when you start studying this stuff in school, you read about the Holocaust, and you're like, wow, that, you know, how did that happen? And sort of seeing it happen in the world that you live in. And, you're like, well, now you see how that happened um, because people sort of just say, oh, you know, that's terrible. But, you know, I like my Nikes and it is what it is. So, you know, there's a number of ways to influence the U.S. government through corporations as well. The supply chain insisting to corporations that uh, they not use forced labor and slave labor because a uh, huge amount of uh, Chinese source cotton is sourced by forced labor. And then all the corporations used to have forced labor. And so there's a great movement on supply chain to hold companies accountable and make sure their corporate social responsibility departments are making sure that they aren't using forced labor. So, you know, Nike, Apple, Columbia, all our great corporations are sort of have done pretty decent work. You know, obviously, this sort of change happens because of activism, because a corporation left to its own is going to be like, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing anything. Um, but, you know, sort of somehow shaming works. And I have all sorts of people saying, I don't believe in shaming, but I do. <laughs> so, so, I mean, because we're talking about people's lives. Like, this can't happen. So that's, uh, you know, I wrote sort of like a, some recommendations for the administration to just sort of say, like, let's let's just deal first with the genocide. Let's come to some understanding. But, uh, you know, so far, the Chinese Communist Party is not interested. Yeah. And what was the Trump administration's approach? Because, you know, it seems as though it lacks an approach. It was kind of interesting because Mike Pompeo uh, was great on the issue, actually. And there was a deputy national security advisor named Matt Pottinger, who was a previously a Wall Street Journal reporter, who was actually really great on the issue. So there was a Uyghur staffer at the White House, and the Uyghur activists had an open door to Pompeo's office. I mean, Trump knew nothing about it and couldn't care less. He's quoted in one of the books as telling uh, President Xi that it's good to have concentration camps or something. But Pompeo was good, essentially. But the problem, as with many of the things with the Trump administration, was it wasn't organized and it was sort of like haphazard. So they would make statements, but there was really nothing behind those statements. And then the trade war was, you know, like pretty much nonsense, right? Like I don't, I don't even know what we achieved in the trade war. So it was a lot of bluster. Uh, you know, the emotional support for the Uyghurs themselves was good. You know, speaking about 
their plight was was very good because that, that's helpful. But um, they didn't take the next steps. On the way out the door, Pompeo designated the in a genocide, which was great. And I think the Biden administration will continue with recognizing that genocide. But again, it was like haphazard. Why did you do it on the way out the door? What were you doing for the last four years? That kind of thing. You know, like ultimately, you know, what was achieved, and that's how you sort of assess anything. More Uyghurs were in concentration camps in 2020 than they were in 2017. So we were going the wrong way. But, you know, there was some, there were some good things. Kind of continuing that, how hopeful are you that the Biden administration will actually take some of these steps to deal with this, with this tragedy? Do you think that there's actually the political capital in the Biden White House to pick this fight with China and invest serious time and resources into dealing with this project? I think so. Time will tell, right? And so as an outside activist, I will just keep pushing and the Uyghur exiles will just keep pushing. You know, they're not really asking for much. And, you know, we'll see. There's some very good people uh, inside. who Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, is great. And it'll just be, you know, sort of John Kerry's primary uh, goal is the is the climate deal, right? But I, he has spoken about uh, human rights. So it'll be a process like anything else in government. You know, having been, been in government, it's not a straight line. It just isn't. We, we wish it were, but it isn't. But, you know, that's why sort of activists are important and uh, pressure campaigns are important. And we'll just keep on the press, keep up the pressure. But the good thing is there are people inside who are, who are concerned, who care, who uh, know what they're doing, whose competence is a very important thing and sometimes lacking with political appointments. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a little bit optimistic, but, uh, you know, and this sort of thing, you just keep pushing, right? Like this is, when you decide to be involved in something like this, you just keep pushing full steam ahead until you get to where you want to go. And if you never get there, you just keep pushing anyway. And you're trying to get as many allies as you can, and you're trying to evangelize to as many people as you can about, you know, sort of these sort of situations, like as a human rights activist. Those are all great points. Um, and as we're nearing the end of our time today, this is a question we've been asking all of our guests recently. Is there something that we did not ask you about or we haven't talked about yet today that you think our listeners need to know about? Um, we haven't talked about the union. Oh, that's me asking you questions because oh, I want to know what's going on in Madison. <laughs> I guess that's irrelevant to the listeners. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think... Um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting time, right? Like, I think there's always something to be optimistic about. I think there's always uh, something to be hopeful about. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done, right? So if you're interested in politics and history, and it's, it's a great time to be out there because there's so many things to do. You could throw yourself into the climate crisis. You could throw yourself into racial justice. You could throw yourself into all these human rights uh, issues we've talked about. You can throw yourself into ending forever wars. There's so many critical things happening right now that there's no shortage for, you know, sort of a, a student or a recent graduate. There's no shortage of things to get involved with. And that's, it's, you know, that'll always be the case, I suppose. But I think, you know, there's probably more hope for optimism now than any time in the recent past. So, you know, it's been a tough, it's been a tough few years on many levels. But I, I think, you know, I think the United States could potentially be leading the way back. Um, because in Europe, it's it's tough. The disinformation is growing and many of the governments are going the wrong way. You know, there's a massive 
group of authoritarian dictators that are empowered. But, you know, I think these these things, they either happen really quickly or they happen slowly. It's one or the other. But I think we're on the right track. And so I think uh, I think it's an exciting time to be interested in these issues and want to work on these issues. And uh, the the union is open right now, okay. but you have to show uh, that you've had a series of negative COVID tests to get inside. And of course, you got to wear the mask. Seventy-two um, hours. Or you, you have to you have to have two negative tests per week continually if you're living on or near campus. And we have a little app on a on the cell phone that shows a little green badge if you've met your testing requirements oh. and are continually getting negative tests and a red badge if you're not. So you show that to the people at the door, they see the little green badge and and you walk on in with the mask. You know, the last question that we usually ask our listeners is that, and you know, what we, we just brought up COVID too. So, you know, we've covered arms sales, wars, <laughs> genocide, concentration camps. All the good stuff. Yeah. So needless to say, it's been a, pretty long and at times very dark and stressful year in global politics. And we're asking all of our guests to end with something that they're hopeful about. And you've been talking about how you feel like you do have an optimism in general right now for the direction of the United States, maybe juxtaposed to Europe and the ability of people to throw themselves into making the world better. Would you say that that what makes you hopeful right now or what what just in general makes you hopeful? Um, well, you guys, um, your generation, right? Like, so you're not going to just sit around and I think <laughs> and let it happen, right? Uh, yeah, you're the, uh, you're, you guys are what make me hopeful because we need big, uh, we need big changes. We need uh, not to be ageist, but we need to throw some people out. <laughs> we need to replace them with uh, younger energetic people. <laughs> And uh, I think that's going to happen. I'm really excited about some young politicians. I'm really ex- young activists, and student leaders. And I, I think it's uh, I think we're at a point uh, where good things are going to happen in the next few years, thanks to uh, your generation uh, getting out there and making stuff happen. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It has been a pleasure. Wow, it was my pleasure. This was great. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.